All right. Um, just a, an update because several of you have asked. Um, you know, last week, if you were here last week, I was sitting and I've been cleared to stand now, um, which is exciting. Definitely been feeling less dizziness. We're uh, doing some heart monitoring um, and everything. So I'm actually wearing a heart monitor right now, which is, which is fun. Um, but it's just, uh, which I can't wait to see what happens during this next, you know, little time section or whatever. So um, I, I am feeling better. They're still just monitoring and doing um, tests and everything. I really appreciate, uh, appreciate your prayers um, during this time. And uh, you can pray that I would still keep, I'm supposed to still keep relatively calm, um, but I'm going to really stress the word relatively for me. So um, if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 5 this morning. I'm going to read it, then we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive in. Acts chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, oh, by the way, so if you remember, we, we actually flip-flopped passages, so this is the, the next section after what Jeff preached on two weeks ago. And if you remember, it was talking about radical unity and generosity, and so they were talking about how people were selling everything they had, and they would come and they would bring it at the apostles' feet, and so we are in the middle of that kind of narrative here. So, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out. And buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church. And upon all, upon all those who heard of those things. Lord, help us this morning to understand your word. And to see what is good about even these hard passages. And help us, God, to be faithful, to live in accordance with the things we say we believe. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you're new here, you may be thinking after hearing that passage, what did you bring me here for? Looking at the person who invited you, I thought you said that this was a joyful place. Pretty much sounds like God just killed people who didn't give enough. You know, this passage, this is actually the first time I have specifically preached this passage since we planted a church in Colorado. And when we planted a church in Colorado, we started out with mostly non-believers. And when, that, when we had mostly non-believers, we, um, we read through John and we uh, heard, read all the wonderful things about the life of Jesus. We talked about the death and the resurrection. And through that, by God's grace, um, everybody that remained a part of that uh, little first house church in our home um, came to Christ and, and professed following Jesus and, and was looking to be discipled. And so we, we went into the book of Acts and thought like, okay, well then how do we live as the church? 
And by the time we got to this passage, we um, had, had been um, mostly, like everybody in our house church at that point were professing believers. Now, that didn't mean that we weren't still continuing to reach out and invite friends. And so, particularly, we had this couple that were friends of ours, that uh, were friends specifically through, uh, Lauren had like a play group, a mom's group, and through that, we met a lot of different people. And there was one particular couple um, that, uh, that, that we had been reaching out to, we'd been sharing the gospel with, we'd been inviting them to church, and they'd had no interest, just zero interest at all. And, they'd, and then every once in a while, they did like the nice, polite thing. Maybe you've been used to that of like, oh, yeah, that sounds interesting. Yeah, maybe sometime, but never. And that went on for years. It's actually three years of us just being their friends and trying to love them and, and serve them. And then one, uh, this night, as I'm preparing for this, and I'm thinking, okay, we've got all these believers. I'm really going to push on them. Like, this passage is hard. I'm just going to let it be hard, and we're just going to deal with it. Like, what does God have for us? And about an hour before um, people were going to start showing up at our house, Lauren calls down, um, and I'm just going to use John and Sue. If you're, if, if you're in here and you're John and Sue, I'm sorry. This is not about you, all right? I'm just making up names. And Lauren calls down from upstairs. And she says, oh, hey, by the way, I forgot to tell you. Sue texted me. She and John are coming tonight. Well, that's bad timing. So I first say, like, okay, uh, would have liked to have known that sooner. And then I go right back to work and my, I pray to God. I say, God, okay, obviously you don't want me talking about this tonight. So what do you want me to talk about? And nothing. So then I prayed, God, you don't want me to talk about this, do I? Do you? Nothing. God, you want me to still do this tonight? Yes. And so they came over and I read this passage and we wrestled with it. It was intense and it was hard. And the entire time they sat on my couch, I can still picture them, they just are staring straight ahead and they are ghost white. They don't say a word. They just sit there. And I'm like, well, this is a disaster. And so we just, but I try to be faithful and we get through it and, and then they leave pretty quickly, understandably so. And I tell Lauren, I said, Lauren, you got to do some damage control. You need to text Sue and just say, hey, so funny thing about this, like, you know, maybe, maybe read the context around that, come back later, that'd be great. So she texts Sue and she said, hey, just curious, uh, you guys left pretty quickly, uh, what'd you think? And Sue wrote back, it was intense. We'll be back. So, the moral of that story is if you are new here, that is not an accident. God has you here this morning for this purpose. And what I can say, and hopefully the testimony that we have as a church, is we are desperately trying to follow Jesus and be faithful to him. And it's sometimes following Jesus is uncomfortable. And God's word is uncomfortable. But it is not ours, it is his. And he is good, and he is God, and he is sovereign. And so when I look at this, if you feel overwhelmed today, you're not, you're not alone. Hang in there. So I want to look today at this passage and say, okay, what, so what was their sin? What actually were they guilty of? Why was it so bad that it cost them their lives? And where is the good news in this? So what was their sin? It's easy to look at this and the, on a quick reading and say, okay, well, it was that they didn't give all of their proceeds because it mentions that they sold their land like many people had done, but they only brought part of what they gained from the sale. But Peter makes it really clear that that's not the issue. He says to them, he says like, when, when you owned it, was it not yours? Like when it remained unsold, it, it, it was yours. You owned it. After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So he's, he's acknowledging like this, it's not about the fact that you only brought in part of the proceeds. Like that was always, you, that was between you and God to do with as he was calling you to do. So then what was it? Was it that they made a big show of laying it at the apostles' feet? Sometimes people point that out. It's like they, they, brought, they brought it and they made this big show of it and they laid it at the apostles' feet. But I would say, well, it can't be that because literally the verse before 
Joseph, who then is um, called by the apostles Barnabas, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And that act is praised. So it's not that specific thing. What we find, it's not actually about the physical, specific things they're doing, but the heart behind it. Their great sin is that they demonstrated their unbelief by lying to God to present themselves as holy before men in service of another master. I'll say that again because that kind of helps organize this part. They demonstrated their unbelief. So we talk about how the root of all sin is unbelief. They demonstrate that they didn't actually believe, fully believe what they said they believed by lying to God to present themselves as holy before men in service of another master, of another God. So the clear charge is that they lied. You have not lied to man, but to God. And this is a critical first point that it doesn't really need much unpacking. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just address this one quickly. The sin, like we said, the root of that sin is unbelief. Let me ask you this. Do you think they would have lied about what they sold it for and what they were giving, what they were bringing, if Jesus was physically present with them the entire time? Like just to picture, the, picture that scenario as if, like, this is before Jesus is, dies and is resurrected and ascends into heaven, and he's actually with them. And he's with them when they sell for X number of dollars. And then he's with them when they go and they bring it. And he's with them when they're asked, like, is this what you sold it for? My guess is that they would look at Jesus and they'd be like, uh, no, we actually sold it for more than that. So what do we see in that? It's unlikely that if they knew God was present with them, that they would lie about it. But the reality is they demonstrate by lying about it that they don't believe. They don't really believe that God is present. I have found in my life that the most powerful ally in my, in my thoughts in fighting sin in my life has just been simply to believe that God is present in that moment. Not imagining, well, what if Jesus was standing here, but to see and realize and know that God is present in the Holy Spirit, that he sees everything, that he sees my motivations, he hears what I say, he knows what I have done, And why would I try to fool him? Yet so often we get trapped in this of lying to God and lying in front of God because we don't actually think he's there. Ananias and Sapphira do not ultimately believe. They might have said they believed that God was present, but they're demonstrating in this moment that they don't believe that God is present. And so they lie. But they don't just lie because, you know, for no reason. They lie to present themselves to others as holy on the outside while they were sinful on the inside. And the word we use for that is hypocrisy. Now there isn't much worse in the eyes of Jesus than being a hypocrite. He's constantly going after religious leaders for their hypocrisy. In Matthew 6, when he addresses this very kind of situation, like what we're going to end up seeing here is that Ananias and Sapphira are basically going through the Sermon on the Mount and violating everything that Jesus said. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. That's key there, in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. 
And this chapter, this section right here goes on where, where there's, it's full of warnings against hypocrites. Jesus says, don't give like the hypocrites. Don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't fast like the hypocrites. In Matthew 23, Jesus goes on what can only be categorized as a holy rant against hypocrites. Woe to you Pharisees, scribes, and hypocrites. Woe to you who place burdens on others that you do not fulfill. Woe to you hypocrites who present yourself as holy when you are full of sin. You are whitewashed tombs. You are cups that only worry about cleaning the outside of the cup when the inside is dirty. You keep other, you shut the door of heaven in people's faces. Like he is on a holy rant. He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus hates hypocrisy. And this is critical for us. Because we are all hypocrites. What is the reputation of Christians in our country? If you ask people who do not believe, what do you think about Christians? I would venture to guess that the vast majority of them would first utter they're hypocrites. And sometimes that's not deserved. Sometimes it's just because they don't understand like our beliefs that we hold these things in tension and that, that God sees greater things than any of us can understand and his ways are not our ways. But often It is deserved. And it has become so normal to us to hear that accusation that we assume it's the case everywhere. everywhere. We assume that that's just what everybody everywhere says about Christians, but it's not. In many countries across the globe, Christians would not be described as hypocrites. They might be described as foolish, idealistic, weak because they don't fight, but not hypocrites. It has become normal here because there is too much truth in it. If you just be soft enough to hear, we might understand God is with us. And so there's no reason to hide or to manipulate or to spin But just between you and God, lay your heart bare and consider how often we say we are about forgiveness while we hold grudges. How often we say we're all sinners, yet judge those who sin differently than us. We announce to everyone, I don't gossip while slandering those who do. We end up actually thinking it holy to gossip about gossips and to be judgmental about those who judge. We say God is in control and we worry like everyone else and complain like everyone else. We say we have treasure in heaven and we connive and scheme and justify to make sure that we don't have to give up any of our earthly treasures. Jesus was toughest on hypocrites, and so it should come as no surprise that it continues here. And the way we battle that in the church is to confess our hypocrisy. To own it. To say, yes, like that is the gospel. The gospel is we've rebelled against a holy God, and that Jesus has died and paid the price for that, and he has redeemed us, and he calls us righteous even though we're not He makes us righteous by giving us his righteousness and we're being sanctified from one degree of glory to another. It is a process. We are constantly in this battle of trying to live in the identity that God has already secured for us in Jesus. But our entire lives here will be that mixed bag. So we should not present ourselves as having already attained as all, having already arrived. We should present ourselves as ones who take seriously the sin in our own lives and fight against it and pursue Jesus. And we would do that through being honest with God and with others. 
And we would do that by being an environment as a church where we can confess our sins to one another and receive life and forgiveness, not judgment. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Let me be really frank with you. If you are new or newer here, what often happens in a, in a church, if you, if you find like, man, there's something going on there, I want to be a part of that. And you start out and it's, it's all really exciting. And then what I see happen so many times is that that will last until someone in this church body sins against you. And then the enemy will use that to tear it all down. Let me be really clear. If you become a part of this church, we will let you down. We will let you down. By God's grace, we won't want to. Our desire is to serve and love one another and help one another, but we will. We will miss things. We will say the wrong thing. You will hear the wrong thing. Even what you won't hear what we were actually saying. Somebody will slight you in the church. Someone will actually sin against you. What the enemy wants to do is tear everything down. And what we will do is we will flood it with light. And we will confess, yes, we are broken. But by God's grace, we are pursuing him day by day. So we must rid ourselves of hypocrisy. So they lied. They demonstrated their unbelief through their lying and through their hypocrisy of wanting to be seen as holier than they actually were. And all of it in service of another master. What do I mean by that? This is where we get to the money part. Everyone wants to quickly get, skip past that, this part in, in the passage. If I've heard this preached on so many, so many times and talked about, and the number one thing we always want to say is, well, but it was about lying. Yes, it was. Also about money. But we don't want to talk about that. We want to quickly say it's not about money. I actually read through some commentaries this week, and they all just said, like, it's really not about money. And I'm going, like, it's kind of about money. Like money kind of is the thing that brings all this to light. It's like, I feel like that's not just an you know, inconsequential idea or detail. And you have to ask ourselves, well, what's our motive when we want to so quickly get to the idea that like, it's not about money, it's about the fact that they lied? Well, I think our motive is that we don't want it to be about money. Like we don't want to feel any conviction about money. Conviction about lying? Good. Conviction about hypocrisy? Good. Especially for the hypocrites around me. Conviction about giving money? Bad. Why? Because I know I shouldn't lie. Like, there's nobody in here that when I was talking about lying thought, you know, I actually think lying's a really good idea. Lying to God sounds like the best. Nobody in here is like, I love being a hypocrite. I don't know what you guys are doing. It's the best to just say you're something and then be somebody totally different. Like We know that those things are bad. We know we shouldn't lie. We know we shouldn't be a hypocrite. But money, that's mine. What the sin does have to do with money. The lying and the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira are on display through how they handled their money. It wouldn't have come to light otherwise. And what we find is money is the clearest diagnostic that brings unbelief to light. Why do I say that? Saying the right words and convincing yourself you are being honest is easy. We have a membership class today after, um, after worship. We have a bunch of people in there who are wanting to join the church, and we'll talk about this, that you can say whatever you want to say that you believe. That's easy to say we believe these things. And it's easy to convince ourselves that we're being honest about that. Gaining knowledge 
and convincing ourselves that we believe is easy. Showing up for church and convincing myself that I'm devoted is easy. Giving of some of my time is easy. But sacrificially and joyfully giving of money and demonstrating my belief that God is the provider of all things and that it all belongs to him, that's a bit harder. And Jesus says it's not just about money. That actually shows quickly who your master is. And he says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The bookends of this section on hypocrisy in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount deal with money because it is the great revealer of our unbelief. Nowhere is this more on display. We could talk about all kinds of things, but it's clear when Jesus deals with the young man in Mark 10, when he says to him, when, when he says, like, you, well, you know the commandments, and the, the, the guy says, well, I've obeyed all the commandments. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Why? Because what Jesus was doing, by the way, it says he was loving him. He wasn't condemning him. He was loving him. How? By revealing what he actually believed. Would it have been kinder of God? Would it have been kinder of Jesus in that moment to say, hey, I know you're doing the best you can, even though he sees that he is not serving God, but he has another God and another idol? No, it is God's kindness that he reveals this to him. And Jesus is compassionate towards it. He says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Bear in mind, Jesus did not hate rich people. You don't see his ire against rich people. You see his ire against hypocrisy. What you see in his dealings with the wealthy is that he loves them and warns them. It's really hard. Because it reveals, it, is a, it draws on us. Because money represents all that we want to be true. That I can control things by how hard I work and by how smart I am and by all these different things that I do. I can provide for myself. I can take care of myself and those that I love. It, it is up to me. And I have a tangible way to show that it is all up to me. And Jesus comes in and says, but it's not all up to you. And he lovingly says, you need to see what you actually believe about this. See, the Holy Spirit knows who you and I are actually submitted to. We might be able to fool everyone else, including ourselves, but we cannot fool the Holy Spirit. And the quickest way to find that out is to have an honest conversation about money. You ask questions like, am I, am I giving to be seen as holy? Like we see here. And we help kind of mitigate that. I don't know if that's really a major issue here. Right? Like, so we have offering boxes at the back. It's one of the reasons, small reason, but it's one of the reasons why we don't pass a plate during worship because I don't want, if you're visiting here, I don't want that to like be in front of you and be like, oh, I guess that's what I got to do to be here or whatever. And I don't want it to be a, a thing that's in front of everybody. We just kind of subtly put them at the back and people come in and, and they put them in there. And, and, you know, unless as you're coming in, unless you're like walking in, you kind of look around and you're like, yeah, there aren't enough people in the hallway right now. I'm going to take another lap. And I'm going to come back and pass by the offering box. Are you like really clear your throat loudly as you're like putting the check in the offering box? You know, or you drop it and you're like, oh, I guess it's just so heavy. I couldn't like get it in there. You know, like if you're doing something like that, by all means, like stop doing that. Okay? But I think the bigger issue that presses on us is that issue of control. 
And many of us who've been part of the church for a long time give what is comfortable. We, we kind of find the sweet spot of what re, re, kind of relieves my conscience, right? But doesn't make it hard to do all the things that I really want to do. We kind of look at that and be like, okay, how do I get right up to that line where I give, give as much as I can before it, before it really starts to affect me? Or do specific calculations on like the 10%. Like we treat it almost like doing a, a, a tax deduction and write-off. Like, okay, well this, you know, I, well I bought a box of Girl Scout cookies, so I'll take, subtract that out. And I did this, gave this in here. And, and, and so we, it really becomes like this hard-line calculation. And, and so the, at the end of the day, it's like, you know, so here's, here's the remainder that I give. And listen, we... We try to, to help in that. We will be honest and teach on giving because Jesus does. But also, like you should know, I don't have any idea what any of you give. No clue. There's like five people who know. And they don't really have a ton of influence to do anything for you. And so we try to be careful about that. But at the same time, we have to say, like, this is, there's a reason why this comes up. It's a reason why it matters. What does it reveal you actually believe about authority and who provides and who's in control and who is the ultimate judge? And the root of all of the sin is unbelief. I don't believe God is present. I don't believe that the rewards that come from God are better. I don't believe that God is my true God. And what I'm saying here is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you would hear those things. You say, no, I do believe those things. Yes, like the father who says before Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. This is the constant battle. And if we just acknowledge and if we just are, are content with saying, do I believe that God is present? Yes, I believe God is present. Okay, good. Check that box. I'm good. If you do that, then you're missing out. And you run the risk of going down the road of Ananias and Sapphira. Rather, our response should be, I, I believe. I want to believe. Help my unbelief. And let the Holy Spirit search my actions and to see, well, it, is it coming up here? And what, well, what about this interaction here? Like, oh man, in that interaction, I didn't believe that God was present. Would I have spoken to my kid that way if Jesus was physically standing there with me? reveals what we actually believe. And so Ananias and Sapphira are in a situation where what they thought they believed and what they said they believed was not what was actually going on in their heart. But they were going to make themselves look like they believed all these things. And essentially, they made the decision, I'm going to lie to God about my devotion to God so that others will think I am devoted to God all in the service of another God. That is dark. And Peter isn't buying it, not, not because he's psychic, but similar to the healing of the lame man, I believe that the Holy Spirit told Peter that they were lying and then when Sapphira came in, he told Peter that she would suffer the same fate. I do need, I want to I just point out something here really quickly. I'm going to go out on a little bit of a limb, and I fully expect to maybe get some emails about this. But I do not believe that Peter exacted that judgment. He was the vessel. And much like when he heals the lame man, that Peter's not the one that heals the lame man, but the Holy Spirit heals the lame man through Peter, and Peter is listening to the Holy Spirit, and it's one of those situations where we talked about, like the Holy Spirit says to Peter, I'm going to make him walk, and Peter's like, all right, get up and walk. That the same thing happens here, and I do not think that Peter, it would be, it would be irrational to think that Peter felt anything but a deep grief and an awe and a fear of God in that moment. So, that's what happened. Those are the sins. And that's where normally we just say, well, that's the end. And some of you are hoping, like, that'd be a good place to stop. But God still killed them. 
Like we can have all this conversation about what the actual sin was and oh yeah, that's why, okay, that was the sin and that's really bad. He still killed them. We kind of got to deal with that. Like why was it so bad? Why was it not just met with a rebuke or a warning? Like why did God strike them dead in front of the whole church? Like we get it. Bad, bad. Lying, bad. Hypocrites, bad. I get it. My money, bad, bad. But we're deserving of death? Isn't that an overreaction? Isn't this why people have such a hard time believing in Christianity? Because the Bible is so much full, like there's so much of God's judgment and wrath and killing people. And people talk about how they can't believe in an angry God. They think God should be far more understanding of our sin. Kind of like a, a kindly grandfather who just kind of winks and shrugs and like, ah, boys will be boys. Responds to your mishaps and little misguided actions with a little chuckle and a wink. Encouragement to, hey, do better next time. And what this actually does is reveals our attitude about sin. The bottom line is every single one of us, you, me, the person next to you, every one of us underestimates the horror of our own sin. A part of this is God's kindness to us, that if he showed us the horror of our own sin, none of us would be able to stand. But we all underestimate the horror of our own sin. I'm going to give you a weird illustration. I'm known for weird illustrations, analogies. Here's one. Imagine you hire a babysitter to watch your children. And you tell her, whatever you do, don't use the stove. Something's wrong with the stove. Don't use it. Only use the microwave to heat things up. Do not use the stove. And you leave and you come home to your house burned down and your children in ICU in a medically induced coma. And you find out that the source of the fire was the stove because the babysitter you hired and entrusted used it. And when you ask her why, she said, I wanted mac and cheese. What's so wrong about that? you'd likely be enraged, demanding that she be arrested. If you tell this story to other people, they would all demand that she pay the price for this. And imagine she, in telling her story, says, you want me to be arrested? All I did was make mac and cheese. Like, how crazy are you that you think I should be arrested and spend my whole life in prison because I wanted mac and cheese? Like we don't understand the horror of our sin because we don't understand what our sin actually is and what it actually produces. We think it's about this little surface thing that just happened. And what we don't realize is all of the destruction that flows from our rebellion against God and our insistence that we want to be our own kings. Let me ask you, I know it's going to get uncomfortable, but I'm going to ask, what do you think God's response should be to people who buy and sell 10-year-old girls on the black market? What do you think God's response should be to those who scam the elderly out of all their savings so that they live in destitute? What do you think God's response should be to the people who have hurt you or the people have hurt the people you love. So we can't buy into the lie that God's attitude toward our sin should be that of a kindly grandfather who notices you snuck a piece of candy before dinner and just gives you that little wink. Like, What would you say to that same grandfather if he responded in the same way to the sale of his granddaughter? Just winked at him. Hey, do better next time. We would say he was evil. 
See, our problem isn't with God's wrath. It's where that wrath is aimed. We are all for God's wrath being aimed at them in those situations out there. They're the really bad people. They do the really evil things. But at me and the people that I love and people in my culture, well, that's an overreaction. But every little sin we do opens the door for evil to wreak havoc on God's creation. What God meant for good is perverted in countless moments throughout every day in our lives and destroyed by our, by our refusal to believe that we were created by him and for him and that he knows what is best, that he works all things together for good, that he is right and just to rule over all things. We are the babysitter who says, oh, no problem, totally agree. This is your house, your stove, totally agree, but then decides that she knows better. Our refusal to take sin seriously is the evil and the brokenness all around us. Our refusal, give me, I'll give you an example. Our refusal to take the sin of lust seriously, to reduce it to just not having sex outside of marriage, that creates a world where fantasy is okay, which means pornography is okay which opens the door for the exploitation of those who have no power, which leads to the buying and selling of 10-year-old girls on the black market. Too far? I'd say not far enough. If we have the audacity to think that Jesus is speaking with hyperbole when he says that if you even lust after another woman, then you've committed adultery. He's not exaggerating. He's showing us how the world works and how our sin wreaks havoc in the world. When he says, if you have anger in your heart, you've committed murder. Our self-justified feelings of anger are declarations that I don't have to submit to God when he says that vengeance belongs to him. When he says that I'm to love my enemies. It's a declaration that I know better than God what has happened, what should have happened, and what the just response and punishment is for it, how to make those things right. And that is a world where murder happens. Listen, the sin of the babysitter in my dumb illustration was not making mac and cheese as much as she would want to say it is. It was believing she had dominion where she had none. And in rebelling against the one who had true authority, who had true understanding, and in so doing, destroyed what was precious. Every time we exercise our own lordship, our belief that we are the master of our own domain, we may say, I just, I was just making mac and cheese but we are doing something far more evil. And I do want to make it clear that it is not lost on me. If you ever wonder, does Jay get nervous? Yeah. I'm preaching on a passage on hypocrisy, preaching to you about hypocrisy. This is the most terrified I get. My fear is of the Lord. Because he is the holy and just God who despises sin and all the destruction that it causes. And he will make all things right. And his wrath burns against sin and sinners. And rightly so, we would think him evil otherwise. Our sin is evil and it is serious. And that is a major point the Holy Spirit is making as the church starts to form. So what is good news about this? What's this? If our sin really is that big, 
If even the smallest things that we do really are that heinous, not just like, oh yeah, we all make mistakes, but no, it's actually active rebellion against God. And through that, destruction and evil reign right now in this kingdom until Jesus returns. If that's the case, if our sin is really that big, that evil, that heinous, then how big must the cross be that it pays for all of it? How deep must the Father's love be for us that he would adopt us as sons and daughters? How powerful must the Holy Spirit be that he would transform us into who we were created and meant to be? Both moment by moment, day by day, here as we pursue him, and then finally in glory. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You hear that? You see the parallel with the rich young man? He didn't say that to the rich young man to condemn him. He said it because he loved him and to reveal that he might be saved through Jesus. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus. This is the great mystery. This is the thing that's hard to believe. Not that God's wrath burns against sin. That is good and right and just. We could not call him good if he did not care about evil destroying his creation. The great mystery is the depth of mercy and grace that he would take rebels through whom all this destruction has taken place and make them his sons and daughters. <laughs> Where are you going to come up with something like that? I mean, imagine, I mean, I've already gone this far with that babysitter illustration. I'm just going to land that plane. What would you say, if you read about this story, what would you say about the parents if they forgive the babysitter? What would you say if they not only forgave the babysitter, but they reconciled and welcomed her back into their lives? And what would you say if they not only forgave her and welcomed her back, but they adopted her as their own and made her their daughter? It would be inexplainable. And that is the prodigal son story in Luke 18. Jot it down and read it and be in awe. That is what's hard to believe. But it's true. And so our response as a church is that we would take our sin seriously. That we would not look at a story like this and try to figure out exactly well, what is the sin that they committed and just make sure I don't do that one, but that we would see that all it's doing is revealing the seriousness of our sin and the evil nature of our unbelief and of wanting to be our own gods. And that we would take it really seriously, but that we would see the cross as bigger and more glorious. We talk about it all the time. Small sin, small cross. Like, no wonder we don't rejoice so much in the gospel. We think that, like, our forgiveness is just not that big of a deal. But if we actually saw our sin for what it is, then that must mean the cross is bigger than I could imagine. That must mean that the gospel is even better news than I could possibly fathom. Like, don't rob yourself of experiencing the radical, extravagant love of Christ by minimizing your sin. Instead, come to him and let us encourage one another to do the same, to not be the justifier of one another, 
but to turn one another. When we confess sin to one another, don't be, don't be the justifier for them. Turn them to Jesus. And let us be a place that practices the presence of God. We are in his midst right now. We are very aware that he is with us. Let us be a church that is honest and transparent, who say, I believe, help my unbelief. Where it's okay to not be okay, but also where we encourage one another to lay hold of the new life that is offered to us and given to us through the life, death, and resurrection of our Jesus. Let's demonstrate and live out with the help of one another and through the power of the Holy Spirit what we actually believe. So that when we sing songs, I'm going to have the band come up here, as we sing a song about what we believe, that we would declare it and that we would pray for God. And that my prayer is that this would be a mix of crying out and laying hold and declaring what we believe, but also acknowledging and asking, Lord, search me and know me. See if there any, be any, any unkind or unrighteous ways in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. And receive and see the cross. Don't let the enemy condemn you because Jesus did not come to condemn you. He came that you might be saved through him and find life eternal. Let's pray. Lord, this is, it's big and it's heavy. God, I just keep being struck by this idea that if I really am as sinful as your word would, would show and reveal, like, might it be that rather than it being a way that you are trying to condemn or heap shame, God, might it be that it is your kindness to reveal what is actually going on inside of my heart so that I might see the glory and the wonder of the cross. That I might rejoice, Lord, that we might rejoice when we read that you demonstrate your love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were good, not while we were kind of at our best or in our best day, but God, you look at us, not, not while we're just doing little tiny sins, but you, what are you saying in that, Lord? You're saying while we were at our most evil and darkest, your love was on display that Jesus Christ lived and died and was resurrected so that we might be able to die to ourselves and find life here in this earth and in glory for all eternity. God, let us be a church that embraces that and rejoices in it and that looks around at each other in awe and wonder. Can you believe this? How big is the cross? How deep is your love? How powerful is the spirit that we might be called your children? Amen.